Welcome back to my podcast. I preached the following message on May 31st, 2020 at Tekoa First United Methodist Church. The title of the sermon is What's Gotten Into Peter? And the scripture comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Enjoy. Just last week, I was reading and journaling through Exodus chapters 3 and 4. And this is the part where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and called him to go down to Egypt to, to demand that Pharaoh set the Israelites free because the Israelites, remember, were in slavery in Egypt. And I couldn't help but notice in that passage that the word but appeared frequently. Exodus 3.11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Exodus 4.1, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Exodus 4.10, but Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Exodus 4.13, but he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. Well, you got to give credit uh, to Moses for being so honest with God, but I want to make sure that you get the picture. Moses had the miracle of a burning bush. This was a bush that was on fire but would not be consumed. The burning bush alone was an unmistakable manifestation of the presence of God. Moses knew without a shadow of doubt that the creator of the universe was speaking to him through this miraculous bush. As if this weren't enough, apart from this miracle, God gave Moses three additional miracles. The first one was to take his staff and throw it on the ground, and the staff would miraculously become a snake. And Moses, like yours truly, is afraid of snakes, and the Bible says he even started to run away. But God said, no, 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 go back and pick it up by the tail, and it'll become a staff again. And sure enough, that's what happens. Then God tells Moses, this is a strange uh, miracle, to, to put his hand inside his cloak and then pull it out, and it'll be, uh, as the Bible says, leprous like snow. It'll change its appearance, and then you put it back in, and it'll be restored, and it will look normal again. Um, Moses sees all three of these miracles happen right before his own eyes. And then God gives him another miracle, which he can perform um, when he gets down to Egypt, which is to go to the Nile and get some water, throw it out on the ground, and it will become blood. But even after all that, Moses is like, I can't do this. I have a speech impediment. I stutter. No one will listen to me. Please send someone else. My point is, when the creator of the universe calls us to do something, commands us to do something, wants us to do something, there really is no place for any of us to say, but God, <laughs> hear, hear my side of it. <laughs> um, given, given what uh, 
uh, what Moses has experienced of God. He, he really has no more excuses for failing to act boldly and courageously. I mean, how many miracles will it take for Moses to have the courage to do what God calls him to do? And yet, if, if all of this is true for Moses, how much more true is it for the Apostle Peter? Moses was an eyewitness to three miracles up to this point in his life, as I've just discussed. But let's consider Peter and the miracles to which he was an eyewitness. For example, he saw Jesus walk on water. Jesus even empowered Peter to walk on water as well. He saw Jesus transform a few loaves and fish into enough food to feed thousands, not once, but twice. He saw Jesus give eyesight to the blind on, on multiple occasions. He saw Jesus heal the sick with just a touch or a word up close or from a distance dozens or even hundreds of times. He saw Jesus drive out demons dozens of times. He saw Jesus literally raise the dead back to life three times. He saw Jesus turn water into wine. He was able to, to catch a miraculous number of fish two times. He watched Jesus instantaneously calm the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee during a terrible storm. He saw Jesus on multiple occasions have the supernatural ability to know exactly what other people are thinking. He saw Jesus become transfigured. That is, he saw Jesus in all of his glory. He saw Jesus' face and his clothing uh, 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 shine dazzlingly bright. He heard the voice of God the Father telling him, Peter, to listen to God's Son, Jesus. But unlike Moses, Peter didn't say, I can't do what you're calling me to do, Lord. Let, let someone else do it. No, it's even worse than that. Peter said, I'll gladly do what you're asking me to do. He said, I won't let you down. I won't fail. I'll never fail you. If everyone else abandons you, Lord, I'm going to be your faithful servant no matter what. And then Peter, of course, proceeds to contradict those words on the night that Jesus was arrested. When Peter asked, when Peter was asked three times, uh, aren't you one of his disciples? Didn't we see you with him? Um, don't you know Jesus? And Peter replied, no, no, and no, paralyzed with fear. And all this after witnessing not just three miracles, but hundreds of miracles. Miracles that proved that Jesus was God in the flesh and had all the power that Peter needed to be confident and bold. All the power that Peter needed to be safe. All the power that Peter needed to be successful in his mission. But after the events described in today's scripture, Peter changed. Why? Or as the title of today's sermon asks, what's gotten into Peter? 
What's gotten into Peter that he's now able in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2 to stand up and preach to this skeptical crowd filled with some of the same people responsible for the death of Jesus? I mean, by standing up and speaking in today's scripture, his life was was in no less danger than it would have been 50 days earlier in that courtyard outside the house of the high priest if Peter had the courage to stand up and speak then. What's gotten into Peter when the authorities warn him against preaching the name of Jesus in Acts 4.19 and he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Where was that attitude on the night Jesus was arrested? What's gotten into Peter when, at the risk of his life in Acts 5.19, he tells the religious authorities, we must obey God rather than men? What's gotten into Peter in Acts 5.41 when he is beaten because of his faithfulness to Christ, yet he's able to rejoice, he and his fellow disciples, and he says that they were counted worthy to suffer uh, dishonor for the name. They're going to rejoice because of that. What's gotten into Peter in Acts 12, 6, after he's arrested and chained between two guards, scheduled to be executed the next morning? What's gotten into him that somehow he's able to sleep like a baby, even though as far as he knows, he's going to be crucified in the morning? As it turns out, he's rescued this time by an angel and he escapes. But he doesn't know that's going to happen when he's sleeping peacefully. In fact, Peter, in Acts 12, is doing the exact same thing that Jesus was doing way back in Mark 4.38 on another occasion when Peter thought he was going to die. Remember? This was when the disciples were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. There was a violent storm Uh, They were desperately bailing water, confident that they were going to die, that they were going to drown, at least before they woke up Jesus, who was sleeping peacefully in the stern of the ship. And they said to him, Lord, don't you care that we're going to die? But now, many years later, this same Peter is doing the same thing that his master was doing, sleeping peacefully in the face of death, so confident, so contented, so brave. What's gotten into Peter that accounts for this change? And you know the answer. What's gotten into Peter? The Holy Spirit has gotten into Peter. And the Holy Spirit made all the difference in Peter's life and ministry. Without the Holy Spirit, we're all in trouble. Indeed, without the Holy Spirit, we can't even be Christians at all. Without the Holy Spirit, we can't be saved at all. Oh, friends, I cannot emphasize this enough. I can hardly warn you often enough. A Christian faith that merely lives up here intellectually is not a saving faith, not apart from having the Holy Spirit live in our hearts. And yet I fear 
that there are people within my own flock, the flock at Tekoa First Methodist, or the, 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 the virtual flock that's gathered to watch this video online. I fear that there are some of you out there, possibly, who may only have a faith that lives up here. And I fear this on the basis of my 16 years as a pastor. Years ago, I served as pastor of Hampton United Methodist Church on the south side of Atlanta. While I was there, a young woman from our church who literally grew up in the church, grew up in Sunday school, grew up in vacation Bible school, grew up participating in children's ministries, grew up in youth group, grew up going on youth retreats and to youth camps and to youth mission trips, some of which I chaperoned, who went through confirmation, who got baptized. This young woman whom I loved went off to college, got involved, thank God, in the, in the Wesley Foundation at that school, and the Lord got hold of her. One Sunday, she posted pictures of herself at a church service in tears, reaffirming her baptism and her faith and telling the world on Facebook that she was now saved, that she now had a personal relationship with Christ, that she knew Jesus. And of course, the people from her home church in Hampton who knew her and loved her so well were praising God and congratulating her, and I was too. And then, a few months later, a young man who also grew up in our church, who was equally, if not more, involved in the church from the cradle onward. He graduated and went to firefighter school and EMT school. And he started dating a Christian young woman, and he started going to her church. And one Sunday, well, I'm not kidding, he did the exact same thing that this other, this other uh, his, his fellow uh, youth group uh, uh, friend had done months earlier. He was posting tearful pictures of himself getting baptized and testifying in a powerful way that he was for the first time in his life, born again. He was saved. He had a personal relationship with Jesus. That's what he was saying. And once again, everyone from our church was congratulating him and praising God as they should have been, as I was. In both cases, uh, they, these two people had, had a Christian faith that no longer just lived up here in their heads. They had a Christian faith that lived in their hearts. What had gotten into them? What had gotten into them that they wanted to tell the whole world about what Jesus had done for them? What had gotten into them was the same thing that had gotten into Peter. The Holy Spirit had gotten into them. <laughs> but suddenly, I felt convicted. <laughs> Why do young people at my church, who grew up in my church... <laughs> have to leave my church in order for this transformation to take place in their lives. What were we missing at Hampton? And I'm not telling on Hampton. I've preached the same thing to them before. But, but what, what were we missing? What we were missing is this, or at least we were often missing this. We were missing the thing or the, the person 
the activity of the Holy Spirit, which seems so abundantly evident in today's Scripture. We were missing the Holy Spirit filling us and doing powerful things in our midst, doing powerful things through us. We were so often missing the Holy Spirit. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. If we are authentically Christian, that means that we're born again. That means we already have the Holy Spirit. That means He already lives within us. That means there's nothing else that we need to do in order to receive the Spirit. The Spirit is our gift. The moment that we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, the Spirit enters our lives and begins working to change us from within through the process of sanctification. That's a miracle of God over which we have no control. It's automatic. It's going to happen no matter what the moment we receive God's free gift of eternal life and receive Christ as our Savior. But let me point you to two interesting verses. Ephesians 5:18. Paul writes, "And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit." Also, 1 Thessalonians 5:19. It's almost a negative way of saying the same thing that Paul just said in Ephesians. He says, do not quench the Spirit. If the Spirit is like a fire, for instance, you know, you, you quench it by throwing water on it. That's kind of the idea here. So, in one case, be filled with the Holy Spirit. In the other case, do not quench the Spirit. In both these cases, however, please notice Paul is writing to those of us who are already Christians, who already have the Holy Spirit living within us. Yet Paul is implying that whether or not the Holy Spirit works in powerful ways in our lives depends, to some extent, on us. This is not automatic. Being filled with the Spirit is not something that automatically happens. We have some responsibility. Otherwise, it would make no sense for Paul to command us to be filled with the Spirit or to command us not to quench the Spirit. Do you see what I mean? And, and I feel convicted, like, like in my own life and in my own ministry, what am I doing to quench the Spirit? What am I Doing or what am I contributing to in, 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 in church to quench the Spirit? Every time, for example, that I pray some pro forma prayer without even thinking about the one to whom I'm speaking, when I pray words to impress the people who are listening, when I treat prayer as if it's as if it were a maraschino cherry on top of the church Sunday, just a little garnish that you quickly set aside before getting down to the business of eating the Sunday. When I do that, I am quenching the Spirit. When I feel anxious about some problem and I feel helpless, I feel stuck, I feel afraid, all the while forgetting that I have all the power I could ask for to solve any problem I'm facing, but I don't even bother 
asking because after all, I feel as if it's up to me. The weight of the world is on my shoulders. When I do that, I am quenching the Spirit. Indeed, when I look over my shoulder at some other successful pastor and I compare myself to them and think, if only I had what they have, all the while forgetting that I do have what they have, or at least I have the only thing I need to be successful in my mission, which is the Holy Spirit living within me. When I do that, when I compare myself to others and wish that I had what they had, I am quenching the Spirit. What about you? What do you do in your own life to quench the Spirit? What do you think we risk doing as a church to quench the Spirit? Some of you know Dwight Moody. He was a powerfully effective pastor and evangelist who ministered mostly in Chicago in the late 19th century. In 1871, two women in his church felt called by God to pray, quote, that the Lord would give him the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. And he knew that they were praying for him, and he didn't like it at all because he thought he was sort of being judged by these two women. Like, are you saying that something's wrong with me? Are you saying that I'm missing something? But reluctantly, Dwight Moody agreed to pray with these women on a weekly basis for a little while until his church burned down in the great Chicago fire of 1871. And he went to New York to do some fundraising so that he could build a new church in Chicago. And while he was there, he describes something that happened to him. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, Moody was already a Christian. He already had the Holy Spirit within him. But like Paul says in Ephesians 5, he and these women sensed that he needed more of the Spirit, more of the Spirit's power. He needed to be filled with the Spirit in a way that he hadn't been before. And that's what they were praying for. He goes to New York, and then he wrote the following about an experience. Listen to these words. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths. And yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience, if you should give me all the world, it would be small dust in the balance. That happened because those two women were praying for it to happen. Brothers and sisters, please pray for me like that. Pray for one another like that. Pray for our church like that. Please pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us in such a way 
that, that both personal and corporate revival and renewal will happen right here at Tekoa First United Methodist Church. Pray. Amen. Dear God, let the fire of your Holy Spirit come down right here. Come down in our homes and fill us in a powerful way. Come down uh, for those who this morning are, are in their cars for our drive-in church service. Come down when we can gather again safely in the sanctuary and, and in Cheek Hall. Let your Holy Spirit come down and, and do mighty, powerful things within us and through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. During this COVID-19 crisis, our worship schedule is unusual. So I invite you to go to tocoafirstumc.org for more information about what time we meet and where and what the safety guidelines are. You can also worship online on our church Facebook page and on our YouTube channel. And again, our website is tocoafirstumc.org. 